last but by no means least, Vanessa Beely, who's going to uh, <laughs> talk about the current geopolitical situation. And I think a little bit the sort of perspective of uh, groups within the region, countries within the region, as they resist empire and where she sees it as going at the moment. Um, over to you, Vanessa. Uh, thank you so much, Piers, and I feel extremely privileged to be in such um, good company. Um, I'm probably going to cross over definitely with Aaron on the clean break, so I'll skip over that a little bit. And I'll probably complement um, what Atif and uh, Richard were saying. Um, so basically what I'm going to look at is uh, Washington and London's long war against the Middle East, or rather West Asia, the rise of BRICS, uh, Global South independence, the emergence of a neo-pan-Arabism, and of course the multipolar world that has been mentioned by many people. Now I'm going to start off with a direct quote from uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, which he gave during an interview, I think, in, in the last month or so. And I think for me, it encapsulates exactly what Israel actually represents to the US. And it's quite rare um, for any American politician to be quite so uh, overt in, in their opinion. So I'll start the quote. Israel is critical, and the reason it's critical is because it is a bulwark for us in the Middle East. It is almost like having an aircraft carrier in the Middle East. It's our oldest ally. It's been our ally for 75 years. It's been an incredible ally for us in terms of the technology exchange and building the Iron Dome, which we have paid a lot for, has taught us enormously about how to defend ourselves against missile attacks. That military expenditure, 75%, goes to US companies under the agreement, under the, um, uh, the MOU. If you look at what's happening in the Middle East now, the closest allies to Iran are Russia and China. Iran also controls all of Venezuela's oil. Hezbollah is in Venezuela. They've propped up the Maduro regime. And so they control that oil supply. BRICS, Saudi Arabia is now joining BRICS. So those countries will control 90% of the oil in our world. If Israel disappears, the vacuum in the Middle East Israel is our ambassador, our beachhead in the Middle East. It gives us ears and it gives us eyes in the Middle East. It gives us intelligence, the capacity to influence affairs in the Middle East. If Israel disappeared, Russia and China would be controlling the Middle East and would control 90% of the world's oil supply. And that would be cataclysmic for US national security pretty much says it all right there. And so therefore that, that really shapes what I'm gonna continue um, saying in, in the presentation. So basically it's about the reshaping of the Middle East, which has been an ongoing colonial project for more than a century, including the French-British Sykes-Picot partitioning of the territory, the British creation of the Zionist colonialist settler state after the Balfour Treaty in 1917, which facilitated the European settler land grab from Palestinians until the UN partitioning of Palestine in 1947 in favor of the Zionists. And then of course, the 1948 Nakba, the ethnic cleansing of more than 750,000 Palestinians from their land with no right to return. In 96, as Aaron uh, mentioned, uh, there was the clean break doctrine, a new strategy for securing the realm 
Now, interesting uh, elements of that doctrine included working closely with Turkey and Jordan to contain, destabilize, and roll back some of its most dangerous uh, threats, which included uh, Syria. Um, Israel should seize the strategic initiative along the northern borders by engaging Hezbollah, Syria, and Iran as the principal agents of aggression in Lebanon, according, of course, to Israel. Direct attack would be enabled on Syrian territory and against Syrian targets in Lebanon, a move to contain Syria and to curtail its alleged weapons of mass destruction program. Plans included the removal of Saddam Hussein, as Aaron mentioned, to weaken Syria's position in the region and to strengthen Jordan as Israel's ally. As special consultant to US Presidents Nixon, Ford, and Reagan, Pat Buchanan put it, in, in the document, in the strategy, Israel's enemy remains Syria, but the road to Damascus runs through Baghdad. Then um, we have uh, the map of uh, the new Middle East. Uh, this map was prepared by Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Peters and published in the Armed Forces Journal in June 2006. And it, it was made widely available um, on, uh, to the public. The term New Middle East was introduced to the world in June 2006 in Tel Aviv by U.S. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, who was credited by the Western media for, for coining the term in replacement of the older and more imposing term, the Greater Middle East. Renowned author and historian Mahdi Nazem Roya said this announcement was a confirmation of an Anglo-American Israeli military roadmap in the Middle East. The project, which has been in the planning stages for several years, consists in creating an arc of instability, chaos and violence extending from Lebanon, Palestine and Syria to Iraq, the Persian Gulf, Iran and the borders of NATO garrisoned Afghanistan. An article very recently in June 2023 in Jerusalem Post is headlined, Israel is well positioned in the new Middle East. Israel announced a massive success in defense exports, a record 12.5 billion with Abraham Accord countries, accounting for nearly a quarter of those deals. And those countries at the time being um, include Egypt, Jordan, UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco, which is effectively a normalization of relations with Israel. There's also an important reference, which I think Atif uh, mentioned, to the India-Middle-East-Europe Economic Corridor, the IMEC, which is designed to compete with the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. Um, and uh, we can see uh, the map, if it will move forward. Yes. Um, which, as I said, links uh, Mumbai through Dubai, Riyadh, Al-Haditha, Haifa, and into Europe through Piraeus uh, in Athens, in Greece. Um, and then, of course, we have the infamous Oded Yinon plan for Greater Israel, the Israel of Theodore Herzl, 1904, and of Rabbi Fishman, 1947. Um, to a large degree, we've entered a new stage in the 75 to 100-year uh, Zionist plan for Palestine, um, appropriation of the entire territory and final ethnic cleansing of what appears to be all Palestinians from the West Bank and Gaza, resettlement in the Sinai in Egypt and elsewhere, as we heard also, um, I think, from Atif. In January 2023, Netanyahu said, 
These are the basic lines of the national government headed by me. The Jewish people have an exclusive and unquestionable right to all areas of the land of Israel. The government will promote and develop settlements in all parts of the land of Israel, in the Galilee, in the Negev, in the Jolan, Judea, and Samaria. The Greater Israel Project is an integral part of U.S. foreign policy, the New Middle East, to expand U.S. unipolar supremacy through the fracturing and balkanization of the Middle East. It is supported by NATO and largely by Saudi Arabia. In March 2023, Israel's far-right finance minister, Bezalel Smotrich, caused regional uproar when he presented the map of Greater Israel at a conference in Paris, during which he also claimed there is no such thing as Palestinian people. The map showed Jordan and the West Bank within Israel's borders. The timing of October 7th events in relation to the imminent normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel is also important to note. From Netanyahu's perspective, this rapprochement was meant was a means to increasing Israel's foothold in the Middle East and confronting Iran. It would also have been a mortal wound for Palestinian justice and resistance movements. Under Trump in 2017, Washington declared support of the Zionist illegal settlements, recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and Israeli sovereignty over the Syrian Jolan territories unlawfully annexed in 1967. Under Biden, there has been some shift in the narrative, but Washington endorses the Israeli annexation of the entire Jordan River Valley and the illegal settlements gradually consuming the West Bank. The Oded Yinon plan operates on two essential premises. To survive, Israel must, first of all, become an imperial regional power, and two, must affect the division of the whole area into small states by the dissolution of all existing Arab states. The Zionist strategy is that sectarian states would become incorporated into Israel's sphere of influence and would provide Israel with regional and moral legitimation. Very recently, Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant made it very clear that Israel has no choice but to pursue victory in order to survive. He said, the feeling that we will soon stop is incorrect. Without a clear victory, we will not be able to live in the Middle East. So this has become effectively an existential uh, battle for survival between the Palestinian people um, and Israel and uh, in, in the larger picture in the region. Netanyahu, of course, needs victory in order to ensure his personal political survival and to avoid prosecution for corruption. Bearing all this in mind, we can better understand the reaction of the region to the events that began on October the 7th. It is fully understood by the countries of the resistance axis that includes Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Iran, and Yemen, that the US and Israel are seeking escalation in order to achieve their goal of destabilization and balkanization of the enemy states, to put the force as Kennedy describes uh, the military garrison, which is Israel in the Middle East. So I'm going to look now at the escalation and provocation by U.S. and Israel since December 2023. Of course, it's been ongoing uh, since October the 7th, particularly in the northern occupied territories on the border with Lebanon, but also in um, multiple aggression against Syria um, by Israel. 
On December the 21st, the house of the commander of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards in Syria, Brigadier General Razi Mousavi, was targeted by Israel in the residential area of Sayeda, Zainab's southern Damascus. It's also a busy pilgrimage area for Shia Muslims, and at that time, on Christmas Day, was packed with civilians. One of the longest serving IRGC officers in Syria and a close friend of Qasem Soleimani, assassinated in January 2020 under the Trump administration. Mousavi was responsible for supporting the resistance fronts in Syria and the training of Palestinian resistant factions inside Syria. Israel regularly targets Syrian Arab army positions. We are actually expecting an attack tonight. So if you hear anything incoming, there's nothing I can do about it if they do come in relatively close to me. Um, and they have attacked artillery and air defense positions in Syria and targeted the civilian airports of Aleppo and Damascus multiple times in 2023 under the pretext of eliminating Iranian forces or influence inside Syria. It is a clear attempt to reduce Syrian defense and even offense capability in the event of escalation, rarely reported in Western media. On the 2nd of January, targeting southern Beirut, the capital of Lebanon, Israel assassinated Hamas deputy leader Saleh al-Aruri, who was also instrumental in the creation of the Qassam Brigade military wing of Hamas. This was the first strike on Dache in southern Beirut since the 2006 war between Israel and Hezbollah. Now, before Christmas, the Zionist regime officials had been increasing the threats against Lebanon and Hezbollah. Netanyahu had threatened publicly to turn Beirut into Khan Yunus, which is in the south of Gaza, if Hezbollah refused to withdraw north of the Latani River. Um, Israel invoked UN Resolution 1701, which was introduced after the 2006 war to guarantee no weapons or militants south of the Litani River in the hope of bringing the US into the conflict, which has failed. Hezbollah has always refused to withdraw from the south and their long range and short range weapons are not clustered only in the south, but throughout Lebanon. So this is largely an exercise in, in escalating um, the conflict with Hezbollah. After the strike in the capital city of Beirut, Secretary General of Hezbollah, Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah, has vowed to retaliate to the point where sufficient deterrence is reinstated against further Israel attacks on Beirut. Yesterday, 62 missiles were fired at Meron Base in the northern occupied territories. Meron Base is responsible for all air operations towards Syria, Lebanon, and the northern part of the eastern Mediterranean. It also constitutes a major center for electronic jamming operations in these zones, and it's believed to be the base that would have, been di that would have directed the strikes on Al-Aruri in Beirut. This is considered to be only phase one of the retaliation by Hezbollah. Lebanon itself has filed a complaint to the UN Security Council over the killing of Aruri, calling it the most dangerous phase of Israeli attacks on the country. Um, local journalist writing for the cradle media, Hassan Elayek, Tel Aviv's assessment of war with Lebanon is based on its reading that Hezbollah wishes to prevent a major confrontation at any cost. Not only is this calculus wrong, but it also has muddled the Israeli minds to the point where this may itself lead to the outbreak of a destructive war between the two sides. 
Elijah also points out that, that we've had three stages so far of the Zionist aggression um, against Gaza in particular, but I, I would also say against West Bank. Um, so stage one, the obliteration of northern Gaza, which Atif has referred to, the slower destruction of the West Bank. Stage two is the occupation of strategic areas of southern Gaza, which is supposed to be the safe zone, of course, where more than one million displaced Palestinians have been forced to gather in appalling conditions and still under Zionist bombardment. The IOF withdrawal from Gaza in the north does not signal the end of the war on Gaza. Many regional analysts believe that reducing the pace of the ground war in Gaza is a prelude to an Israeli war on Lebanon. <clears throat> and we're certainly seeing an escalation on the northern occupied Palestine front, where an estimated 230,000 Zionist settlers have been forced to flee the settlements on the border with Lebanon. There's a belief that Israel is implementing a U.S. decision to push the war into a third phase before the end of January 2024. This requires the war to be lower in intensity to distract from the mass slaughter and brutal ethnic cleansing of civilians in Gaza and, of course, coincides with the case that's being brought into the ICJ by South Africa. On the 3rd of January, a terrorist attack was carried out in Tehran, uh, in Iran, targeting civilians at the burial place of Qasem Soleimani on the fourth anniversary of his assassination. More than 173 were injured and 84 uh, killed in the attack. ISIS has officially taken responsibility, but as it's well documented that the terrorist group is a proxy both of the US and an asset for Israel in the region to a large degree, um, it does raise the question as to whose hands were actually behind the attack. Finally, on the 4th of January, the US targeted the deputy head of operations of the Popular Mobilization Forces, the PMU, in Baghdad. Haj Mushtaq Talib al-Saidi was killed in the strike on PMU headquarters in eastern Baghdad. One other was killed in the attack and six injured in the drone strike. The U.S. claimed it was in retaliation for the Islamic resistance uh, of Iraq attacks on U.S. military bases in Iraq and Syria, which uh, the bases in Syria, of course, are illegal under international law. Um, there have been 118 attacks by the Islamic resistance since October um, the 7th. So in 10 days, um, the U.S.-Israeli alliance um, has struck targets in Damascus, Beirut, Baghdad, and Iran. Um, so I'm just going to bring back the map of Syria. This is a relatively old map, probably about a month old. But I just wanted to point out that Syria's position in the resistance axis is particularly fragile, um, with the U.S. triggering attacks by ISIS from the Al Tanif base, which is in the southeastern uh, section of uh, Syria. Um, these attacks have been intensified since October the 7th, particularly against Syrian Arab army positions in the central uh, desert area of Syria. The northwestern area of Idlib that's effectively under the control of uh, armed groups dominated by Al Qaeda have also intensified their attacks on uh, civilian areas of northern Hamas, but also against Syrian Arab army positions 
in northern Latakia and western Aleppo. All of these, again, have increased since October the 7th. What Syria has done is to open up its territory um, to Palestinian resistance factions and to the Islamic resistance to carry out attacks um, against US or Israeli targets. Israeli targets predominantly, of course, in the occupied Jolan territories. Um, and it's worth noting that Russia is increasing its observation posts on the border with the occupied Jolan territories. Um, it's also worth noting that the emergency Arab League summit that was called uh, very early on into uh, the, the Israeli aggression against Gaza, the proposal that was put forward by Syria, Yemen, Palestine, Algeria, Tunisia, Lebanon, Iraq, Kuwait, Libya, Oman, and Qatar was vetoed by Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Jordan. And the primary um, elements of that proposal was one, to prevent the use of American and other military bases in Arab countries to supply Israel with weapons and ammunition. Two, freezing Arab diplomatic, economic security, and military relations with Israel. Three, threatening to use oil and Arab economic capabilities to pressure to stop the aggression. Four, preventing Israeli civil aviation from flying in Arab airspace. So that very strong proposal was effectively uh, vetoed and watered down by uh, the countries that have or are on the verge of normalization with Israel. Finally, I want to come to, to Yemen, um, where there is also an area of increased tension, bringing the US alliance closer to Iran or to conflict with Iran and closer to confrontation with Yemeni forces or Ansrullah a coalition resistance movement and the de facto government of Yemen, often described in Western media rather euphemistically as the Houthis. Um, what I describe as the coalition of the unwilling um, put out a joint statement. Um, now the coalition now consists of the US, Australia, Bahrain, Belgium, Canada, Denmark, Germany, Italy, Japan, Netherlands, New Zealand, Republic of Korea, Singapore, and of course the UK. Now, I think in the wording of part of their statement, they made it very clear what their priority actually is here. It's the loss of 15% of global seaborne trade, which passes through the Red Sea, including 8% of global grain trade, 12% of seaborne traded oil, and 8% of the world's liquefied natural gas trade. International shipping companies continue to reroute their vessels around the Cape of Good Hope adding significant costs and weeks of delay to the delivery of goods and ultimately jeopardizing the movement of critical food, fuel, and humanitarian assistance throughout the world. 15% um, of world trade passes through the Suez Canal. The Africa route around the Cape of Good Horn is 60% more expensive, according to some analysts, and two weeks longer, or three weeks, as Atif mentioned. The inevitable knock-on effect will be an increase in energy prices already hiked as a result of the NATO proxy war um, in Ukraine. And there's also predicted to be a shortage in energy and grain supply. The Northern Sea Route, of course, is controlled by Russia, which currently is effectively at war with NATO and the EU in Ukraine. As with Ukraine, the impact will be greatest on the EU. As a result, EU Commission Foreign Minister Joseph Borrell has been trying to negotiate 
a settlement with Hezbollah to prevent escalation with Israel to no avail as Hezbollah is not prepared to withdraw north of the Latani River to comply with Israel's demands. From the Yemeni standpoint, as millions poured onto the streets of the capital Sana'a yesterday um, to protest the genocide in Gaza, they are effectively fulfilling their responsibility under Article 1 of the Genocide Convention, which again Richard mentioned, which is the obligation to prevent genocide and even to punish genocide to some degree. The blockade of occupied Palestine-bound ships in the Red Sea will end when the genocidal campaign against Palestinian ends and the siege is lifted on Gaza. Now, the map that I'm showing here shows the, the sort of um, conglomeration of um, both uh, the, the coalition ships, the US ships, the Iranian warships that are now entering, um, even Chinese ships. And I think here is where I would identify, and a few people have agreed with me, there is a potential for false flag. Um, the potential of seeing an event which might uh, facilitate some kind of escalation, particularly against Yemen and potentially, of course, against Iran that is seen very much as being the backer of uh, the Ansarullah uh, activities. <clears throat> All members of the resistance, excuse me, of the resistance axis are responding to extreme provocation with restraint in order to draw Israel deeper into the quagmire of a failed ground war in Gaza and a multiple front war currently being waged without US overt involvement. Of course, they are providing the bomb. 65,000 tons of explosives to date have been dropped on Gaza. Um, they're helping with logistics and with funding. Delta forces have been identified as, as operating alongside the IOF. And of course, they've given a tacit green light for Israel's criminal military adventurism and genocide in Palestine, while actively involved in the targeting of resistance commanders and the triggering of proxies, including ISIS in Iraq and Syria, and the increase of their own military footprint in Israel, particularly in the Negev Desert in Iraq and in Syria. Um, Lebanon-based journalist Shamin Nawani who's recently written about the fact that Arab perceptions have shifted dramatically over Israel's war on Gaza, with popular sentiment gravitating to those states and actors perceived to be actively supporting Palestinian goals and away from those who are perceived to support Israel. And she says, but if the confrontation between the two axes escalates, Arab perceptions will almost certainly continue tilt away from the old hegemons towards those who are willing to resist Israel on the region. There will be no relief for Washington and its allies as the war expands. The more they work to defeat Hamas and destroy Gaza, and the more they, the more they lob missiles at Yemen, Iraq, and Syria and besiege the resistance axis, the more likely Arab populations are to shrug off the Sunni versus Shia, Iran versus Arab, secular versus Islamist narratives that have kept the region divided and at odds for decades, which is where I come back to this, this emergence of a neo-pan-Arabism we've seen in the last 12 months. She also says the swell of support that is mobilizing due to a righteous confrontation against the region's biggest oppressors is unstoppable. Western decline is now a given in the region but Western discourse has been the first casualty 
of this war. And I will end there with some positive news, I hope. Thank you, Vanessa, um, for that fascinating uh, overview of what is happening. Well, not really an overview, a lot of detail in there, but clearly we're at a very, very dangerous juncture at this point in time, which we'll possibly come back to.